What's up, everyone? Welcome back to what'll be the last episode of this ACT podcast. In this episode, I'll be covering the math section. And basically, since I started the podcast, I was wondering how I could possibly teach math in just an audio format without any visuals. And I basically decided that I don't think a podcast is necessarily the best way to learn math content. So I'm not going to cover any math content in this episode, but I am going to talk about a few strategies that I think will help you with your overall approach to the math section. And that's not to say that I think you shouldn't study the math content. There's a lot of good resources online. There's a lot of good YouTube videos. You can buy prep books that'll walk you through some of the math. Or you could start meeting with a tutor or a teacher for an ACT prep course. I think those are all great options to help you learn the math content. Options that I think would be better than just listening to someone describe how to do a math problem without being able to see anything. So we're just going to go over some strategies today. So as always, go to that blog link that I've linked in the episode notes and open up the useful links page and go to the 2018 test. And on that 2018 test, scroll down to page 24, which is where the math section starts. And we're going to be looking at a few things from this section. So I want to start by giving an overview of the math section. So the math section has 60 questions and you have 60 minutes to do it. So that averages to a minute a question, which is nice and easy to remember. But one thing that's important to note is that the questions get harder as you go on. So the first 10 questions are quite a bit easier than the last 10 questions. I also want to point out that this section is usually, I would say, the second hardest of time. I would say reading is usually where people have the biggest time in struggles. But behind that, math tends to be a section where a lot of people run out of time, especially with those later questions towards the end. So one way to approach the timing that I think works pretty well is something I call the two-pass approach. So the general idea behind this is you want to get all the easy points you can first. You just want to knock out all the easy questions, get your points there. And then afterwards, you want to spend a little more time on any harder questions. So the way this works is you go through the entire test twice. And the first time you go through, your goal is just to pick up any easy points. So you're going to answer any questions that seem easy, that you can figure out fairly quickly. But any questions that you look at and you're not able to figure out what to do, those ones you want to skip the first time through. So what this looks like is you'd be going through the questions and you want to give each question about 10 or 15 seconds. And if you've thought of a way to solve the problem within 10 or 15 seconds, then just go ahead and solve it. But if you haven't, or if maybe you have thought of something you think might work, but you're not sure, or you think the solution you've come up with in your head would take a long time, then on any problem where that happens, you want to just give it your best guess, circle the question in your ACT booklet, and keep moving. So the idea here is that you'll get all the easy questions out of the way quickly, and you won't spend too much time on any of those hard questions. You're limiting yourself to around 10 to 15 seconds per question. So then the second time through, you're going to go back to all of your circled questions that you basically just guessed on, and you want to give those a little bit more time. So you can go back and spend the full minute on these questions the second time through, but you just want to make sure that before you do that, you've already gone through and picked up any easy answers. And this is valuable because it ensures that you look at every single question on the test before committing to spending a long time on certain questions. And I've actually found this to be really helpful in some of my own test-taking stuff. I had to take the GRE a few months ago, and I did the same approach where I'd go through the test once, just answer anything that seemed easy, and then I'd go back through a second time and spend a little more time on the harder questions, 
And something I found was that often on the second time through, these questions that I thought were hard the first time, for some reason were easier. And this definitely didn't happen on every single question. But on some of the questions, I think my brain got warmed up or maybe seeing some other stuff in different questions helped me figure out some tricks I hadn't noticed before. But I found that the second time going through, I was able to answer some of the questions pretty quickly that I had thought were really tricky the first time. So that's kind of a positive side effect of this method. So this two-pass approach is what I recommend for an overall strategy on the math section. And one other thing I want to point out is that you want to really focus your efforts on the first 30 to 40 questions. Every question is worth the exact same amount, one point. So there's no point in spending a lot of time, energy, and study on stuff that shows up in just the last 10 questions versus stuff that shows up in the first 30 to 40 questions. Your easier points are coming mostly in the first half of the test, so you want to make sure you can really nail those questions before you spend a lot of time worrying about later questions. Because those later questions are built to be harder, and so on those questions you'll be spending more time to get the exact same point value as you would on earlier easy questions. That's just something to keep in mind. So the two-pass approach is my overall strategy for the math section. And now I want to talk about four quick strategies that'll help you on specific questions. And I'll use a few questions from this test to illustrate. So the first strategy is to use your calculator whenever possible. So the ACT, unlike the SAT, lets you use your calculator on the entire math section. So you have this extra tool to use that you should use as much as you can. The first example I want to look at is number 38. 38 says, which of the following expressions when evaluated equals an irrational number? So there's kind of two things going on here. One is, do you remember what an irrational number is? And for any of you that don't, an irrational number, well, it's easier to talk, I guess, about what a rational number is. A rational number is any number that can be written as a fraction. An irrational number is any number that can't be written as a fraction. And usually irrational numbers have these long strings of decimals when you put them in your calculator. And usually rational numbers don't, but that's not always true. So let's say you do remember what a rational and irrational number is, but as you look at these options, you might not remember all the different math you can do with square roots. Like you might not remember that, for example, g, the square root of 8 over the square root of 2, you can basically write that as a big square root over the whole thing. So it'd be big square root over 8 divided by 2. And if you divide 8 by 2, that's 4, so it'd be the square root of 4, which is 2. So g essentially simplifies all down to 2. But if you don't remember that, you can just use your calculator. And you can just plug in square root 8 divided by square root 2. And that simplifies to 2. And you could do the same thing on each of these different problems. Without having to remember what the different rules are, you could just plug things into your calculator. And what you'd see is that all of these simplify nicely, except for k. And k gives you this long string of decimals when you put it in your calculator. So that's one way you can use a calculator is it can save you some mental effort on simplifying or reformatting certain numbers like this. Another problem where you could use your calculator to help you is problem 54. And this one might not seem as obvious at first how it would be useful. But 54 says, one of the following graphs in the standard xy coordinate plane is the graph of y equals sine squared x plus cosine squared x over the domain negative pi halves is less than or equal to x is less than or equal to pi halves. Which one? And then the different answer choices are each different graphs showing 
different curves from negative pi halves to pi halves. And here's another question where you could solve it in multiple ways. So the first way, and the quickest, is if you remember your trig identities. And if any of you have studied trig identities, you might remember that sine squared x plus cosine squared x just equals 1, always, which tells us that h is the right answer. But let's say you didn't remember that, or let's say there's some other tricky graph that you're not sure what it is. You can use your calculator to help you out. And one thing you could do, which I think is always a good place to start, is you could just plug in 0 for x and see what y equals. So what I mean by that is you would just take the sine of 0 and then square it. That's what sine squared x means, and you'd get 0. Then you'd take the cosine of 0, which is 1, and square it, and you'd get 1. So when x equals 0, y should equal 1. And really, the only graph that gives that to you is h. So just by testing that one point, you could figure out that h is the right answer. And even if there were multiple graphs that had the point 0, 1 on them, so let's say h hits at 1, and let's say j, instead of hitting at pi halves at the top, it hit at 1. Well, then what you could do is you could just plug in a different number, like pi fourths or something, into the sine and cosine in that function, and you could see what that equals, and then that would tell you where two different points on the graph are, and that's usually enough to tell what graph is correct. So in graphing situations, you can use your calculator just to plug in a few values and give yourself an idea of what the graph looks like. So strategy number one, just use your calculator as much as possible. As you practice, you'll learn to recognize situations when your calculator will be helpful, and to also recognize situations where it's better to just do the math with pencil and paper versus trying to do the calculator. The second strategy I want to talk about real quick is just plugging in numbers to different problems. And I want to show what this means with two examples. So the first one is 16. So problem 16 says, which of the following expressions is equivalent to x to the 2 thirds? So this is one of those problems, again, where there's multiple ways you can solve it. And this is very common. There's usually multiple ways you can solve a problem. And one of the tricks with the math section is figuring out the fastest way. And that's something you get by practicing a bunch of different problems. So going back to this problem, it says, which of the following is equivalent to x to the 2 thirds? If you remember your exponent rules, you'll remember that anytime there's a fraction, the bottom part of the fraction is like a root, and the top part of the fraction is just a normal exponent thing. So the answer to this one is k, because we have a 2 on top of the fraction, so we should have an x squared somewhere. And then we have a 3 on bottom of the fraction, so that's kind of like a 1 third in there. And anytime you have a, a fractional exponent, the bottom number can be moved out and written as a root like the cube root here, the third root, as it's written in k. But let's say you don't remember any of that. Easy way to fix that, just plug in a number for x. To make life simple for me, I'm just going to plug in 8. So if I put in my calculator 8 to the 2 thirds, that equals 4. So now I can just go down the line and plug in 8 for x in each of these spots and figure out which one equals 4. And the only one that does is k. And there's, there's some circumstances where you might find multiple answers that are turning up as right. So maybe like g and k both for some reason equaled 4. What you could do in that case is just plug in another number, like 10, and then just go down between those two that you narrowed it down to and see which one still equals the right thing. So that's one way you can use your calculator and plug in numbers to get the right answer. That'll save you if you forget a few rules like the exponent rules. 
Another case where this idea shows up of just plugging in numbers is 18. So 18 says, for which of the following conditions will the sum of integers m and n always be an odd integer? And then each of the answer choices is giving different rules for what m will be or n will be. Like they're both odd integers, they're both even, one's odd, one's even, etc. So the way this problem is written is it's making you think very abstractly. It's making you think of odds and evens, but nothing specific. A simple way to deal with that is just to plug in like an odd number if it says odd or an even number if it says even. So for example, for f, it says m is an odd integer. Okay, rather than thinking of some vague odd integer, just make it 1. It's an odd integer, it's really easy to do math with. And then n can be anything, so you could say, okay, what if n's 1? Then 1 plus 1 is 2, so the sum of those is not an odd integer, so the answer is not g. Sorry, the answer is not f. You could do the same logic to eliminate g. You could check with h, okay, m and n are both odd integers, so they're both 1 and 1. That equals 2, we already ruled that out. J, they're both even, so in this case, M and N can both be 2. If you add those together, you get 4, not odd. And then K, M is odd, and N is even. And so if M is 1, N is 2, then your answer is 3. Just to double check, you could do a different case, like M is 11, N is 4. You add those together, you get 15, still odd. So rather than thinking of these abstract concepts, it's often easier to just plug in numbers that follow the rules they've given you. And they're giving you different rules for each answer here. And I find this really helpful on questions where the answers aren't numbers, but the answers are either things like this where they're telling you m and n are odd or even, or where the answers are kind of written like equations, where the answers are just in variables and there's no numbers involved. It's often helpful to just plug in your own numbers and test the different cases to see which ones hold up. So that's strategy number two. You can plug in numbers either so you can put stuff in your calculator and save yourself remembering the much rules, or you can plug in numbers to make problems a little less abstract and a little more concrete, easier to actually do math with. The third strategy, which is one I'm sure you're already all familiar with, is just to plug in answer choices. This is sometimes helpful. It's not often super helpful because I think the ACT designs their questions specifically so that you can't just plug in answer choices, but it can be useful in some problems. So if we go to problem three, it says, for what value of x is the equation 2x plus 7 equal to 2 to the 17th true? And each of the different answer choices are giving us a different value for x. So here, like there often is, there are multiple ways to solve it. The first is you could break out your pencil and paper, do some math, move around the equations, and you'd find that x equals 4. So the second way, if you're not sure how to do the math on this problem, to do it with pencil and paper, and which might actually be faster than that anyway, is to just plug in the answer choices. And something that can sometimes be helpful is starting in the middle and working your way out. So rather than just starting at A and plugging in and working your way down, you can start at C. And often when you plug in one answer, you know whether your answer is too high or too low, so you can move one of those directions. And this just saves you from having to plug in five different things. Like if the answer is E and you start at A, you're going to have to go through all five answers. But if the answer is E and you start at C, you'll likely recognize by plugging in C that you need to go higher, so you only have to plug in three. So that can sometimes save you some time. But if you plugged in the different answer choices, when you plug in B, you'll see that that equals 2 to the 2 times 4 plus 7. 2 times 4 is 8, plus 7 is 15, 
So when you plug in 4, you get 2 to the 15 equals 2 to the 15, which is true. So there's an example of when plugging in an answer can help. So strategy number 3, plug in answer choices when it's useful. It's not as useful maybe as it is on some other kinds of math tests, but for some questions it can help you out. And the last strategy I want to talk about is to just make sure you're doing things the fast way, and if you can't think of a fast way, then skip. So remember, timing is huge on the ACT. There's a lot of people that I think, given an hour and a half or two hours, could answer basically every question on the math section right. But there's a lot fewer people that can answer every question right in just an hour. The timing plays a huge role. So you want to make sure always, at all times when you're doing these math sections, that you're not just finding the right answer to the question, but you're finding the right answer quickly which is always harder than just finding the right answer by any means. And here I just want to use two questions to illustrate ways you can deal with this. So the first is number 52. So 52 says you are given the following system of equations, y equals x squared, and then rx plus sy equals t, where r, s, and t are integers. For which of the following will there be more than one xy solution with real number coordinates for the system? So a lot of you on reading this might be thinking, I don't even know where to start with this one. I don't know what's going on. So my first instinct looking at a problem like this would be to glance down at the answer choices to see what I'm looking for. And it looks like I'm looking for different sort of combinations of R plus 4ST or R minus 4RT, stuff like that going on, and seeing if they're basically positive or negative. And this question's tricky. This question basically comes down to you being able to reformat the above system of equations so that it's written like a quadratic equation. Then you plug that equation into the quadratic formula, and you have to remember some principles about the quadratic formula. And there's not really a great, great way to get around the fact that you're going to have to do those steps at some point. So this problem's pretty tricky, and I would honestly say it's probably not worth your time to try to get it right for most. Some people might look at this and they might be able to figure it out fairly quickly. But if you can't solve a problem in under a minute, it's not really worth doing until the very end if you have extra time left over. So this is a problem where, honestly, I'd say for most people, your best option is just to guess something really fast and keep going and not even look back. Don't worry about it. And if you're doing the two-pass approach, you'll do this the first time through, where you'll just guess on this and maybe come back to it later. But you don't want to spend too much time thinking about a problem or too much time wrestling with something, even if you feel like you're almost about to solve it. I think it's better to miss a question in 20 seconds than to get it right in two minutes. Because if you get a question right in two minutes, you're basically guaranteeing that there's another question you're going to miss because of timing. So make sure that you're paying attention to questions that are likely to slow you down, that are likely to eat up your time, and just cut loose from those. Just forget about them, leave them behind. Not every question is worth it. That's a really important principle with the timing. And I want to look at one more question that sort of goes along with this idea that you need to find the fastest way to answer a question. And if you can't find a fast way, then you should probably just skip it. And so the next one I want to look at is just 53 right below. It says the third and fourth terms of an arithmetic sequence are 13 and 18, respectively. What is the 50th term of the sequence? So there's usually one sequence problem on the ACT, 
And here's this one. So if you studied sequences recently, you'll probably remember that there's a formula that helps you get like any term in the sequence, whether that be the 10th term or the 100th term. To use that formula, all you need to do is figure out basically like how far apart each of these terms are. So in this case, they're five apart, and then what the first term is. And once you've got that, it's fairly easy to compute. The trick is, what if you don't remember that formula? Which is probably true for most people. Unless you've studied it recently, there's not really a reason you would just have that formula sitting in your brain. So you'd have to look for other options of how to solve this problem. And the first thing that comes to my mind is just to get out the calculator and start mashing. So from 13 to 18, you've added 5. So to get to the fifth term, you just add 5 again. To get to the sixth term, you'd add 5 again. And you could basically, in your calculator, just hit plus 5, plus 5, uh, what would it be, like 46 times, and then you'd get your answer. And you'd have to weigh at that moment, is that worth it? So it honestly might be hitting plus 5 50 times in your calculator probably takes less than a minute. So in that case, it's probably worth it. But you do run the risk of messing up or losing count at some point. So you want to watch out for that. But just mashing the buttons on your calculator might actually be faster than trying to remember or trying to use that formula for the term in a sequence if it's not right there already at the top of your head. It's a really important principle. Make sure you're finding the fastest way to answer a question, not just a way to answer the question. If you just find a way to answer the question, I guarantee you're going to run into some timing problems. But if you're consciously thinking about finding faster ways of solving the problems, you're going to see some good improvement on the math section. And that's something you're going to get more from practicing math questions than from studying math content. So as you practice math questions, think about multiple ways you could solve each problem. And on most problems, I think there are multiple ways you can solve them. There's usually two or three different ways you could solve a problem. And it's your job to figure out which way is the fastest and which way works best for you. So that's my fourth strategy. Just make sure you're doing problems the fast way. And if you can't think of a fast way, even if you can think of a slow way to do the answer, just skip it. It's not worth spending a lot of time, even if you get the question right. So there you have my favorite strategies for the ACT math section. And just a quick recap, I like the two-pass approach where you go through the whole thing twice, the first time just picking up easy points, the second time working on any of the questions that you've skipped the first time. And then four question-specific strategies I talked about were just using your calculator whenever possible, plugging in numbers to questions that don't give you any numbers, plugging in answer choices, and the last one is just making sure that you're answering questions the fast way, not just a way. And if you can't think of a fast way, then just skip the problem and focus on other problems that might give you quicker results. So as always, thanks for listening. I hope the podcast has been helpful to everyone listening and studying for the ACT. I'd still love to hear from you, so please email me at 36actpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear about your success or any questions or comments you might have. I'll also still be doing tutoring throughout the summer, so please email me if you're interested in that, and we can set something up for this last summer before I start grad school. So thanks again, everyone, for listening, and good luck studying.